Review Media presents B2B Podcasting. Today our guest is Jonathan Stark. Jonathan is a former software developer who is on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. He's the author of Hourly Billing is Nuts, the host of Ditching Hourly and the Business of Authority, and writes a daily newsletter on the pricing for independent professionals. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Hey, thanks for having me, you guys. Jonathan, I don't know if you intended to speak to the audience of like professional services, legal, accounting, things like that. But as we're as, as Jake's mentioning some of your background and really I feel like is a, a, a strong niche for you and your thought leadership of helping creatives particularly move away from doing hourly billing to doing things more like value-based pricing. I know there's a, there's a lot of other types of pricing that you can do. Um, I think you could probably provide a lot of value to those kind of bill by the hour industries in general. Mm. So, uh, I'm excited to see who's who's uh, impressed and impacted by what you have to say today. But before we start talking about your shows, please share with us a little bit about the the ditching hourly concept. What got you into kind of crafting this um, this new perspective on how to price your work? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. In the sort of mid 2000s, I was managing a small dev shop. We did FileMaker development, and we had lots of leads. Um, we, were, we were well known, got lots of business, uh, but we were billing by the hour and there were about, about 10 developers. Uh, our hourly rate was a blended rate at $150 an hour. And a huge part of my job was dealing with hours one way or the other. It was, you know, it, um, interviewing new prospects and trying to estimate how many hours it was going to take to do the things they were asking us to do. Then I'd write a proposal or an estimate, I should say, with how long we thought it was going to take. Then I'd assign it to developers and then they would guess how long they thought their piece was going to take. And it was just hours all the time. You know, then they'd track their hours and then I'd have to make sure that they got onto a timesheet and into an invoice. And so it was constantly on Fridays, I'd be like, everybody get your hours and we have to do invoicing on Monday, you know. Just And then eventually you'd start to go over the estimate because it was just an estimate, but it did kind of happen every time. And the and if you go far enough over an estimate, it turns out the customer is not super happy and they start to turn into, you know, a micromanaging kind of monster. But you can't blame them really because now all of a sudden there's this sort of leak in their checking account and they don't know how to stop, you know, fill the, the hole. And so they start micromanaging you. They start uh, certainly disrespecting your ability to estimate how long it takes you to do something or to control scope creep or to do all these other things. So then I end up fighting with customers about hours and how come it took you two hours to do the database import this week, but it was only an hour last week. We're not paying for that hour. And then you get into these three hour long conversations debating <laughs> if whether or not they should charge for an hour. And it was a nightmare. And, and, and I'm sure I know from talking to thousands of, of other software developers, this is not an uncommon situation or this is a common situation. Uh, so that was the sort of the situation when it occurred to me one day that our best developer, who I usually call Fred, uh, was probably, we were probably losing money or at least weren't making any money on Fred because he was really fast and he had a really high salary. And we were making tons of money on, an, on our sort of juniorist developer, who I call Barney. Uh, who made half as much money salary-wise, but was still billing out at $150 an hour. And he had a great bedside manner. So he his clients were perfectly happy. And it would take him forever to do stuff. So <laughs> we'd have a, a project that would take, that would have taken me, you know, this class, would have, that would have, should have only taken you 10 hours or something. But it would take him 50. And, and the client was happy. They end up paying like what they paid. And I was like, wait a second. So if we were going to air quotes, grow the business. And we can talk about why I'm air quoting that later. Uh, But if we were going to get more profitable, let's say, we should hire a whole bunch of Barneys, Barneys, which made no sense to me because Fred was like, we were lucky to have Fred. He was great. He's a great developer. He's still doing development today. And I just couldn't square that. I could not square that. And I, I tried to do some gymnastics like, oh, well, you know, Fred helps the other developers. And I'm like, well, no, that's still losing us money because he's not billable. And now they're 
spending less time and, and it took me, it's embarrassing to admit, but it took me at least two weeks before I even questioned the business model or essentially the hourly milling piece. And I was like, oh, wait a second. If we were giving fixed prices, instantly Fred would be by far our most profitable developer. I mean, he, he did stuff well and quickly. And if we were getting $100,000 for something he did in two weeks, that would, that's, that would make it work. And, and all of a sudden, Barney would be a liability, you know, someone to train up and eventually, uh, you know, so, so I really, once I saw that our financial incentives were misaligned, even as the employer, our financial incentives were misaligned, I was like, we have, I can't not do this. We have to do something about this. Mm. And, and I, and I went to the, the owner who I'm friends with to this day, great guy, I explained the situation and conceptually he got it, but he asked but how would we do that? And it, and I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> I, rather than kind of risk, you know, the mortgages of 15 people, uh, I went solo and started my own company. I started out value pricing immediately and it was great. It was absolutely great. I didn't do it perfectly the first year, maybe even the first year and a half, but, you know, it takes some practice to get it down. But mm-hmm. even the first year when I was kind of, you know, blundering my way through it. Uh, it was a fantastic year. Um, I made quite a bit more money, just about double what I would have made in my salary. It, was wow. pretty, it might've even been more than double. It's kind of apples and oranges though, cause salary and project sure. it's different. But, um, but the, the really shocking thing, the thing that surprised me was that my quality of life just, it got so much better because I went from mm from chasing developers for hours and fighting with customers about hours and sending out estimates that I knew were too low, but I didn't know how high to make them. I would have just been making it up. I was doing my best on the estimates, but they were always wrong. And all of that stuff went away. And then, and then there was no such thing as going over estimate anymore. So like when it started to take longer than I thought it was, the customers were like, whatever, it's not costing us any more money, just keep going. And so there was no fighting, there was no tension. And even when things did take me longer than I expected, uh, it didn't feel like torture because the fight was gone. So, you know, my out, my effective hourly rate was slightly decreasing. But when you take away all of the, the stress, you don't really care. And then next time around, you do a better job pricing it. And, and now all of a sudden, there's an incentive to get good at pricing instead mm-hmm. of trying to get good at estimated and, and just trading time for money. So that, probably longer than you, longer of an answer. No, that's great. For. No, that's a great story. That's I think that's what's so. It's because we, we us in a creative business as well. We've experienced kind of this a same the same thing, and yeah, I don't know if it was like we found you first or if we found Chris Doe first. I think it was a Chris Doe video or where Blair, he was talking yeah. about. Yeah, Blair. I remember yeah. seeing a video from uh, Chris Doe on like. It's, it's one of his most viral videos about how much does a logo cost. Yeah, and it's it was, a great one. Oh, dude, it just like very simple video, not a ton of pizzazz, but just the the concept was like so in, earth shattering, and it made it made us realize because we were doing some you know billing by the hour practices a lot earlier in our business. Um, what what there was a phrase that you probably could agree with, and it's billing hourly penalizes efficient work and it rewards inefficient work and then yeah. that's the problem because yeah, like you're as punished you said, for getting good right yeah you know fred was your he was a killer on your team yeah mm-hmm. but he was you know he he wasn't bringing in the revenue that his skill set was yeah. really it should have been bringing in so right. i think that's, and in that's a downturn, super interesting he might get fired <laughs> Yeah, sure. Right. Sure. Right. That's the that's the craziest part. Like if I was going to fire someone, it'd have to be the best developer. Makes that no is, sense. Makes no sense. That's bizarre, especially but when that's you're what the numbers MO, point to. And your MO as a as a as a company leader is not to produce a ton of uh mediocre work, right? I'm sure that your your goal was we want to do better work every year. We want to be an excellent company, provide provide an excellent product and if we're not if we're not you know doing our pricing correctly we're actually shooting ourselves in the foot because we're you know we're actually we 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 have to multiply the barneys rather than the freds as you said so thank you so much for that that uh, analogy now i want to ask um how this you know you went on your own you started developing this this uh 
this concept on your own, a little trial and error. Mm-hmm. And then uh, now you've kind of gotten to this place where you've you've codified this this um, this method of doing pricing for particularly creative, particularly the creative development, uh, web development. That's or is it dev or coding? How would you describe your industry? Yeah, my my background is in software development. So software development. Uh, yeah. So it's so it's initially my sort of uh, core audience or still my core audience is software developers who work for themselves. So they're either, they, they might call themselves freelancers or consultants. Uh, some are contract developers. They, they, people call themselves all different things. Um, but the, you know, my, my, I have 20 years of experience or so, 15, 20 years of experience developing software, either as a manager or as a developer. So um, that's where most of my examples come from. So most of the people I attract are other software developers because I'll, I'll tell software, you know, like spaces or tabs, ha, 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 ha. You know, everyone gets the joke. But as you pointed out earlier, the, the, the things I'm teaching apply to anybody who bills by the hour. So over time, especially after going on Chris's YouTube channel, I attracted a lot of designers who have a tendency to charge by the hour. Uh, and even even things like lawyers and, and accountants, CPAs, and, and landscape architects, and regular architects, and uh, photographers, and illustrators. So it, it's become sort of half software developers, half a, a mishmash of people who typically charge for their time. That's really cool. I love that you've been able to expand the people that you reach with that because yeah, there's so many different industries that that would that should touch. Mm-hmm. So the the question that I wanted to ask next was how did you begin to codify this new way of doing pricing? I know that mm-hmm. you had written a book, but t- just take us on that journey of, of documenting that stuff. Sure. Um, well, I read a lot. I, I looked, I was reading like crazy trying to find some alternative. Uh, the first book I found was value-based fees by Alan Weiss. It's, uh, it was written in the eighties and it, I don't think it's been updated. So it took a little, Kind of modernizing in your head, and and it's and it's applied to management consulting and not software development. So there are a lot of there are a lot of idiosyncrasies of managing a software project after you have given a fixed price that it doesn't touch on that are pretty important. But probably eighty percent of that book was sheer genius. It still applies today, and and I urge people who are thinking about this to read that book. It's really good. Um, the next. I think the next person I found was Michael Port and Book Yourself Solid, which talks about, it's, I think that one's more about lead gen, but that was an important book for me, but it, it might not have talked about pricing very much, um, but it did talk about something yeah. that's critical for uh, profitable pricing, which is uh, having a niche, picking a niche market to go after. It's extremely, I'd say the first half of that book is a must read for anybody who's thinking about niching down. Then... Um, Ron Baker and and uh, let's see which t- I've read so many I'm not sure which one I read first but like implementing value pricing and uh, yeah, there are a bunch of them uh, those those are those were you know I I read I read those books multiple times and did start to get my head around the idea of uh, of of coming up with the what it's worth to the client first the value what it's worth to the client first, and then working backwards. And uh, I, I started to codify that, as you said, back in, let's see, I went solo on January 1st, 2006. And I was fairly well known in our, the space. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was news that I was leaving this firm because the firm was well known <laughs> and I was relatively well known because I spoke at the conferences and I uh, wrote a monthly column in a actual physical paper magazine back then we still had magazines and you know and I had lots of connections and friends and you know uh, so so it was a lot of like what are you crazy why would you this is a dream job why would you quit and I'd say well I'm gonna start doing fixed pricing and they were like you're bonkers we tried that and we got killed so there's a lot of you know I think there's a lot of like peanut gallery being like this is gonna fail or if this doesn't fail I want to I want to pay attention to what's happening here so then by I think it was 2009 when, you know, the experiment was over and for sure it was a great move. Uh, people were like asking me to, people from that community were like, well, could you come to the conference and talk about that? Or could you come to the, come to a meetup and talk about how you did that? 
And there was one particular meetup in Boston where, where it was clear to me that I was bad at explaining how to do this. Like I was, I had kind of internalized what needed to be done and I have a personality that's conducive to it in the first place. So when, when I, when people asked me to explain it, I found that I was, I was telling them what I did, but there's just a lot of head scratching in the audience. So, you know, and the questions were still coming and we were over time. So I said, here's what I'll do for the next you know, however long it takes every wow, Monday, so you, I think recognize if I post about I think I'm something I have one thought, Jay. Sorry to interrupt you, but just just to clarify, I'm to explain it better. So you, you the and reason why you discovered long, that you needed to practice like the discipline, and that's what of ended up documenting this more clearly, was because nuts, which you, I you kind of you had a, an opportunity to share it publicly at this conference, and you realized, like, oh my gosh, this is this is a lot clearer in here in my brain than it is when I'm communicating it. Correct. Hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Awesome. People were like, great. "What about this? What about that? What would you do if if this happens?" And I was like, "Well, I wouldn't do any of that stuff." You know, so, <laughs> so they were like asking really practical questions about the way that they run their business, which was never the way I because I I started with a clean slate, and so they had all of these. They were kind of like when I was still at the firm, where they had all of these. Like, I mean, hourly billing infects the entire organization. It's like a cancer that just gets into everything because there's this core foundational tacit assumption that everything's going to be based on a billable hour. So you come up with systems and policies, compensation, all based on how billable things are or how we're going to track this or how it touches every single piece of the business. So for people who weren't starting from scratch, they would say, well, well, if I'm paying employees by the hour, how do I not charge my clients by the hour? And I'm like, I don't know, don't have employees like me. You know, that's not a good answer. So, (laughs) right. So just fire everyone, you know, what's the big deal? Yeah. Uh, So, so I had to come, I had to come up with ways to implement this stuff for people who weren't like me or businesses that weren't like mine, which is to this day, I still strive to get better at that, especially as I attract different, you know, lawyers, like there's like regulations about it, you know, so it's, it's different. It's there are lots of different complications in each of the different niches. So when you started your your blog post, did that was that the impetus to continue? Obviously to write the book, but then to to move into different avenues of content creation. Was that really the first foray into content creation? Mm, that was. I had a like a terrible blog, like everybody had before that. You know, in the yeah. tooth. 2003 maybe was when I first started blogging, but really it was like every once in a while I'd want to rant about something or uh, there was no sure. rhyme or reason to it. Nobody read it. It was it was, um, it was was just like a, a flea market of things that were important to me on some random day. Like every post started with, boy, it's been a long time since I blogged, you know? So <laughs> I, I wouldn't even count that. <laughs> Other than to say that I had the mechanics in place to have a blog, it, I wouldn't, it was just silly. It was silliness. Uh, but so I had a place to put the stuff when I, I actually had an audience I was writing for instead of just like spouting off publicly. Um, but I don't think I, but I stopped doing that after a while. It was, it was really hard. Like blogging weekly, I find very difficult. I wouldn't think about it all week. And then on Sunday, I'd remember that I forgot to post the article and I'd be like, wouldn't even have thought about what I was going to write about. So now it's like midnight on a Sunday and I'm like thinking back over the week, like, what am I going to write about? Um, But having a, I did notice. So I noticed, I think probably two important things, um, maybe three. One One was that people were starting to read it like, huh, imagine that trying to write something helpful instead of something self indulgent and people actually read it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, another th- another thing was that it was really hard to blog weekly, very hard, um, for, just from a, a writer's block standpoint. Uh, it didn't, it wasn't fun at all. And I like writing, but it wasn't fun at all. It, it felt like torture. It was always last minute, uh, so that was a drag. Um, and there was another thing, but I guess it wasn't important. <laughs> uh, no, there was another thing, but I didn't. I didn't start. I didn't see it like that and it and it I didn't see it as like content creation. I was just kind of, I was just like I told a group of people I would do it so I did it. You know, uh, I guess oh that's the other thing. That's the other thing is that is that kind of having a public promise to do something that is the thing that caused me to 
get over the, you know, stay up after midnight on a Sunday to actually tough through the writer's block and get something published because I said I would. So that, that was, those three things I think are what I learned from that. But I wasn't doing any kind of serious content creation. I didn't start podcasting until years later and it wasn't even about this stuff. It was just like to have a fun podcast with a friend about geeky tech stuff. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. got to scratch that itch. Yeah, tell me, tell me about that journey. So tell me, tell me about how you first got introduced to podcasting. Uh, oh, I actually remember this. I so I had an iPod like with the the wheel that actually turned way back oh, in yeah. the day, and you know I'm 52. <laughs> the butt in the you. middle, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the best iPod. Um, so, and that's what, you know, that was, that was one of the early devices, you know, the, the old black and white, no touch screen iPod was where podcasting started and it was really clumsy to get anything on there, but it was, it was fat. There was something about that device that really captured my imagination in terms of like, how do I get my own content on here? Cause I have a, we don't have to talk about it, but I have a background in professional music you know, professional musician. And, and, Mm. and so, and at the time the pot, the iPod was just music really. And it was like, what if, what if I could get my music on here? So that, that was kind of like, I was super interested in that device. Um, fast forward to not that far. I don't remember the year, but it would have been if people wanted to like check the math, there was a podcast called Boag World which was primarily for web developers and and people who ran websites. And the, the co-hosts were uh, Paul Boag and Marcus Wellington. And they were like, I loved that show. Because, st- you know, way back then, I don't know what, I, I can't even guess what year it was. It must have been when I was in Atlanta, which would have been between 2003 and 2006. So somewhere in there, I started listening to this Boag World podcast. Don't ask me how I found out about it. I have no idea. I don't even think that I don't even think there was like an iTunes directory at the time. I'm not sure. I think I listened to it on my laptop, not on my iPod or whatever I had at that point. But at any rate, uh, I became a giant fan of that show. They're hilarious. And they were talking about a subject that I really liked. And Marcus was a musician. So there was a whole bunch of it it felt like you were hanging out with two really cool friends uh, and also learning about work stuff and joking around and everything. So that was my I was like, this is great. I love this show. And at a certain point, since I have a performance background, I was like, I could do this. Like I, I have a set of skills that would allow me to do this. And I didn't think about it consciously, but later when I wanted to start podcasting, which is probably, I think it was 2011 or 12, uh, with my friend, we did a tech podcast. Um, I was already aware of how I reacted to Boag world as a, listener and how it felt like I was friends with these two guys and I trusted them and they didn't know me from a hole in the wall. You know, it was like, I was like, if I ran into these guys, I eventually did meet Paul, but, uh, and be on the show and all that stuff, which was like a huge bucket list item. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was starstruck by these two guys who just like dopey guys that talked into a mic in a farmhouse in England. You know, so I, I was aware of the effect that podcasting could have on the listener for sure. Mm. That's that's really cool. And so then what, at what point did you decide to to transition from doing it as more of a hobby to how can I how can I use this to actually develop my business? Mm-hmm. So I think at a certain point. Let's see. Well, the, the, fir- the first time I did that was ditching hourly. So at some point I did this. It's called niche and itch is the old podcast and we talked about super nerdy coding things you know like oh what ide are you using these days and uh, and then we 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 did we got that sort of ran its course uh, at about 250 episodes and then we started a new one together we actually just clo- we like shut that podcast down and then we're like geez we kind of miss talking to each other every week so let's start a new pot new podcast and a we started a new one a sort of a future tech podcast about all the stuff that's coming out and like what implications that would have in society and we called that terrifying robot dog and that that at the time i was still doing mobile strategy consulting which was where my business had morphed after the iPhone and it's a long story, but uh, to answer the question, it felt like me and Kelly talking about fun tech stuff, just like the old one was, but this one was about future stuff. 
and it was more accessible and my clients started listening to it. And, and so I would go to meet with them for some meeting or whatever. And then, you know, before, or after the meeting, they'd be like, Oh, the last episode of TRD was amazing. And I'm like, you're wow. listening to my podcast. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, that AI thing or the VR thing or whatever acronym you want, uh, acronym of the week, which seemed like that's what that show was. And I was like, wow, they're, and they're reacting the way that people would react when I would come off stage when I used to be, you know, a singer songwriter or whatever. They were like, not starstruck, but you know what I mean? They're just like, sure, kind of wide eyed. And I'm yeah, like, impact. I'm, it's just me. Like, yeah, you know, but, but it creates, I, I, I eventually called that affect asymmetric intimacy where they feel like mm. we have an intimate relationship and I don't even know who they are. Yeah. And it, but so I, I blogged about that and someone told me there's an actual scientific term for it called uh, parasocial relationships. And you can Google for parasocial relationships. And there's like studies about this effect going as far back as like the fifties with early television, radio and television and why it works to have the rock selling laundry detergent you know there's like studies on it so it's it's a scientific i mean anybody that's listened to podcasts or or really anything knows this is true but it it didn't occur to me that it wasn't some some function of the charisma of the person and it's it's more of a a function of the the style of the medium sure which is shocking yeah it's not the person it's the medium that's fascinating i feel like that is for for people who are listening to the show our ideal audience for the show would be people who are professionals who maybe wouldn't say that they're thought leaders some might but they know that they have a perspective that they want to share with the world their market yeah. the industry their industry but they might be hung up from even starting because they think well do i have the personality for it do i have right. the charisma yeah. and I, you know what you what you just said really kind of pops that balloon it's it's not yeah. really about that and, no. and i think um the ability to do a show as you said provides a a very it's a unique format of communication of of content development where you can hold somebody's attention for 15 30 60 even 90 minutes or more yeah i mean joe rogan's shows are like four hours long <laughs> and they're great uh, they're I super all the time, yeah. And, yeah, yeah it's it's there's there's not there's not really any content like that besides maybe writing a book and, and reading right. someone's book yeah right and it's so much easier i mean I, I just it just so happens that i i do transcripts for uh the business of authority i do transcripts so rochelle can do the show notes and i just happen to notice that over the past, you know, whatever, a couple dozen episodes, um, we, in an hour, we say about ten to 12,000 words. And, like, you know how long it would take me to write 12,000 words? Like, oh. write them? But it's, like, so easy. You're just, like, yeah. having a conversation. Um, if you have a co-host or a guest, yeah, a stream of thought, you, you'll have, like, you'll realize stuff. You're like, uh, mm. if you have another person on the show, if it's a solo show, that's solo shows are a little, I actually find solo shows harder in a certain way, or it took, it took me more practice to get comfortable doing a solo show and not just going off into a total ditch of tangents. <laughs> but if you have a little bit of a structure to it, you can do it. But I find, I find doing a show with one other person, either a, a co-host or a guest is probably the best fit for newbies because uh, there, there's a million reasons we could go into if you want, but I find that that's the best fit for people who are just getting into podcasting. And if you don't feel like you're charismatic, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be perfect. If you go back to almost any show and listen to the first couple of episodes, they sound like garbage. It's like, that's the way you end up with a great podcast is you do a bad podcast and you make it better. You don't start out with an amazing podcast. That's so, really good. It's yeah. true. Like, listen to anyone. Mabim Bam. They have like five or six hundred episodes. You go back to. It sounds like they recorded the first ones in a shower stall. It's it's like unlistenable. Yeah. So, it, the thing that you have to do. You don't need charisma. You don't need a good mic. Whatever you're using for Zoom is fine to get started, but it, you do need to show up and genuinely want to help the audience. Even if you don't have an audience yet, you need to know who the audience should be. And you need to show up and want to help them. And if you can do that, 
they will not care if your mic is a little tinny or you have a lisp or English isn't your first language because you helped them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're just going to be like, that was amazing. I want to see if he can help me more next week or she can help me more next week. That's so great. And there's this thing too, to your point of that, you might not have charisma. You might not be the best pres- have the best presence on video, but even if people don't like your voice, you're still niching down. You're still segmenting your audience because they might not like you. And okay, now you've whittled down your 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 audience even more till you get to that that really that close knit tribe of people that you really want to speak to to begin with. And so there's some advantage to people not necessarily liking your presence, if you will. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's great. I mean, there's so many, I mean, we could get into, I suppose we are going to get into the business aspects of this, but if, if there are people who don't like your the personality piece or the charisma piece or just your worldview, or if they just don't like something about your vibe, you don't want them as clients. I mean, they're not going to like your vibe there either. If you're, if you're just yourself on your podcast and it maybe takes a few episodes to, to relax enough to feel like you're just having a normal conversation with your family or friends then if if they don't click with that, you don't want them because it will be frustrating and uncomfortable. And that's when that's, I've seen software projects anyway, big six, seven figure software projects blow apart. And then the lawyers come out and people get fired. And, and if you're, but if you're friends with your clients, my business philosophy is help people you like, get what they want. Mm. And if you're working with people you like, and they like you, they're not going to sue you. They're not going to freak out when something goes in an unexpected direction. That's always going to happen. There are always surprises on a big project. But having that core trust at the center of it, mutual trust, solves a lot of problems later. So, so, so repelling people who just don't click with you or don't get your vibe or don't think you're funny or mm. smart or whatever... That's good because that's saving you some lawsuit down the road, probably. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that that quote, I had to write it down. Help people you like get what they want. Yeah, oh. not what they need and not people you yeah, don't like. What they want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so oh man. I I want to respect your time. I we could talk for hours. You're just this has <laughs> been such a great conversation. But you did make a, a point of we'd probably get to like the business side of yeah. the show and and, mm-hmm. and how that can, you know. I love that you started a show though for really for kind of more per- personal fulfillment. Like let's do something fun. Like let's, you know, already consumed with a ton of work. Like let's do something that's life-giving, I guess you could say. But now you're 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 kind of finding how, you know, you you're finding that same sort of satisfaction while pursuing a content development endeavor that's actually it's actually um contributing to the growth of your business. So, how have you seen doing these different shows, um, particularly you have a couple, I think you have, Mm -hmm. uh, the business of authority, you have ditching hourly, you also have a a YouTube channel. So you're all over You're You're crushing it. How have you seen some quantitative, or I guess you could just go whatever direction you want. How have you seen some results that have led to the growth of your business through producing this show? Right. Um, so I would say when you, a self, so when I when I publish a show, let's just stick with like uh, I don't know, it doesn't matter, ditching hourly just to pick one. Cool. When I produce that, it's not about um, it's not about awareness or top of the funnel stuff. I don't know how technically we can get in terms of marketing speak, but it's not about really attracting attention. Like I don't think I don't think ditching hourly. I don't even look at the stats. I think a couple thousand people download it every time. I don't, but I don't know. I don't look. I don't care. Because the, the metric that I track is when someone comes into my mailing list, which is the key piece of my entire business, It they already trust me. So if they came in f- through a podcast, they trust me. They feel like we're friends. I don't know them yet. and Maybe we will be friends. But they already give me the benefit of the doubt on anything related to anything that's the subject of the podcast. Same with the business of authority. Rochelle gets the same thing. She, when a lead does come in from the podcast, it's a question of like, do they have enough money to buy something from you? Like they're, they're not even looking at anybody else. So the key piece of the podcast 
from a business standpoint, and this isn't why I do it, but I am aware that it happens, is that it massively builds trust. And, you know, they, they believe in your expertise. They, they see you as an authority, which to me is the level above an expert. Like you can be an expert and no one know it. Like you could be amazing mm. at like Scrimshaw or, Good. you know, whatever, Romulan calligraphy. I don't know. You could be amazing at that. But if you're not, you're not an authority on it if no one knows. So once you become an, I think that's sort of a level up. That's good. Um, so once you, having a podcast turns you into an authority in the minds of the listeners, because as far as you're concerned, you're as far as they're concerned, you're famous for this. Like they can't <laughs> sure. believe when someone else hasn't heard of you, <laughs> which is absurd. Of course, I was just at a, a family thing and my nieces were like, like, are you going to see the new Dune movie? And I was like, yeah, that book was amazing. And I, I even liked the, the David Lynch movie. And I was like, they were like, David Lynch. <laughs> like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and, and I was like, but why are you interested in it? And, and they were like, because Zendaya's in it. And I'm like, what's in it? And she's like, <laughs> Zendaya. And I'm like, and I'm just blank faced. <laughs> right. And there's like three of my nieces there. And they're like, do not try and tell us you don't know who Zendaya is. And I guarantee you that that Zendaya, he or she is way more famous than me if if that person is in a Hollywood movie. Yeah. But but I still don't know her. I have or him. I think it's a her, but it's a her. So yeah. <laughs> okay. So no no clue. So someone that famous, people don't know her or him or whoever. It doesn't matter. You could name anyone. But whoever like, this person is. But it's the same with me. Not everybody's going to know who I am, but it doesn't matter because the people who do know are going to, they're going to trust me. They're going to spread the word a little bit. I don't think podcasts don't, I, I have never seen podcasts in a, you know, in a niche or a specialization like mine. I've never seen them blow up. I mean, you know, and get like millions of downloads. It's, I don't, that to me, that's not the goal of this kind of a podcast. The goal of this kind of a podcast is I mean ones that I produce is so that people for, first that I'm helping people and they're getting educated and if I can do that then I know that they're going to trust me as a, as an expert or a recognized expert or an authority on this subject so when they need help with this subject there is no other name that's going to pop into their head or maybe a list of three or four names so then they're going to then they're going to be like I'm ready to get deeper into this. Uh, but yeah, so so from a business, purely business standpoint, um, when someone comes into your sales process, they're going to buy. If they can afford it, they're going to buy. Like the, yeah. there's just no, the, the close true. is a foregone conclusion. Man, that's, that's so good. You know what's, one thing that I think is interesting is um, I love that you used a couple of phrases. One was one that you kind of coined yourself, asymmetric intimacy. Mm. So I love that. But then the the actual more ex, you know publicly accepted term would be parasocial relationships. Yeah, and this sort is, of a gross term. I don't like. It. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of sounds like, paras, like parasitic. Yeah. Parasitic. Yeah. yeah, I don't like. That. I like asymmetric intimacy. I, yeah, so they sh they yeah. should listen to you on that. So I'm going to use that term. I'll give you credit for it. But one one thing that I think is so interesting about um, the buying cycle, particularly in B two B today is mm -hmm. when 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 you're doing a b2b sale it's not it's not transactional i mean you usually have a handful of different decision makers who are all weighing in on whether or not they should invest in partnering with another firm to help them through some legal counsel or partnering with a, a dev team that's going to help them develop an app or a software and so and that's a journey it's not a it's not something that you just you don't just decide to marry somebody mm -hmm. uh in an instant in a, yeah, a by, by seeing right. a single facebook ad right so right. what what this content allows <laughs> yeah. you to do is it allows you to uh, to to demonstrate that expertise demonstrate your value proposition particularly though in a way that's not salesy, you know, you mentioned it's like, it's, it's not about creating content that has some sort of self-indulgent motive behind it, behind it, but you're just trying to be helpful. And what that, what that does for your audience is it allows them to bring their guard down. It allows them to feel like, as we say, play that feel like they're playing offense rather than playing defense against a sale. And that's what allows them to eventually approach you and say, Hey, 
Like you might, you might not realize it, but we've been actually having a conversation for months now because I've been listening to what you've been saying and I'm ready to speak up. And so it's, it's, I think it's just such a beautiful way to do business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the, you know, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, it's the, the thing with content creation is I, I'll get people to say like, how do I, how do I blog or do podcasting in a way that's going to maximize my SEO? And I'm like, I have no idea. I couldn't care less about SEO. <laughs> SEO is irrelevant. If you're, if you're selling, if you're selling a commodity, SEO is critical, but the number one, the number one by a mile search term that leads to my website when I used to track that, which I don't even track it anymore, was my name. So they Google for my name and I come up. They're not looking for a business consultant. They're yeah. looking for me. If wow. they're looking for if they're looking for just one of many and you're trying to position yourself as just one of many web developers or illustrators yeah. or coaches or whatever, if you're just one of many, they're the, then you do need to care about SEO, but the, but the the next lower price option is one click away. So you need to be the one and only, not just one of many. Be the one and only, and then you don't have to worry about SEO because they're going to search for your name or your business name, whichever one you use. So yeah, so I don't worry about SEO, and I don't think about content. If you look at my blog, it's just a hand rolled thing. I don't. It probably doesn't even have meta tags or whatever whatever the Google gods want from my blog right now. I don't think about that at all. I just focus on turning the light bulb on for the people who I know are reading or the kind of people I wish were reading if I didn't have an audience yet. And if I can turn that light bulb on, they're going to spread it. The word of mouth is going to spread it. They're going to share it on Twitter and LinkedIn and yeah. Instagram and blah, all over the place. People, cool folks like you are going to ask me to come on their show <laughs> and share these ideas with other people. Yeah, I don't care. SEO, and I laughed before when you said, like paid ads, like give me a break. Like if you have a business like this and you're doing paid ads, it's like that's a waste of time and money. Unless you yeah. unless you have a lot of money and you don't care about it and you want to do an experiment and you have another person doing it for you. Mm. But for someone who's an authority and has, you know, your currency is going to be insights and being able to to communicate those insights to an audience in a way that produces action. And spending an hour trying to figure out Facebook ad manager is like a complete waste of your time. So if you can outsource the entire thing and drive ads to your, you know, that is going to drive traffic to your free podcast, then maybe that's a super high top of the funnel thing that you could do. But you think spending a minute of my life thinking about Facebook ad manager is, is too much. <laughs> no, thanks. That's funny. And to your point, I mean, you're, we reached out to you to be on this podcast because you're an authority in your space. Uh, we reached out to you in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. In our mind. And yeah. you know, we didn't Google search, uh, who's the best person for this sort of thing. We're like, no, we want Jonathan Stark on our, on our podcast. Cause there's trust that's there. We've spent years, uh, viewing your content. Um, and so there's trust has been built up through your authority in these sorts of topics. Um, so just to, to double down right. on what you said, I'd love to. Yeah, it's, a long, it's a long game. It's it's yeah. not for the impatient. It's not. That's it's actually not true. Growth, growth hacking. Yeah. You know, it's like showing up every day and trying to help people, and eventually you're going to be able to fund that mission because certain people are going to want more attention, and then you can charge for that. You know, when you, like one on one something or other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you? So to your point of you don't track, you don't uh, you don't look at your your metrics or anything like that. Do you track anything quantitative quantitatively or qualitatively at this point anymore? Yeah, profit and mailing list subscribers. Those are the only two numbers I look at. Only two that actually matter to you at this point. Yeah. How long did it take everything you? Everything else is vanity metric. Yeah. How opinion. long was that process for you to get down to those two? Um, I, I goofed around with. Um, I mean, like, I, I mean, I was a web developer for many years. So by default, I added yeah. Google Analytics to my site a long time ago, but I never looked at it. And when I did look at it, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. And would I rather spend a week getting good at Google Analytics or would I rather spend a week writing seven emails for a group of people who were going to benefit from it? You know, it's an easy decision. So I just took it off my website. So um, in fact, there there are numbers in my email service provider that I asked them to turn off like open rate. I don't need to see that. I don't care about that. It's wrong anyway. And it's, 
it's just getting worse. So, uh, but it's hard not to see it because they put it like boom, like front and center in the interface. I'm like, can you just get rid of that? Get rid of opens, get rid of clicks. I'll know if people are opening the emails because they're buying stuff from me or they're sending me emails like, wow, that was, they'll reply. They'll say, wow, that was an amazing message that came at just the right time. I love stuff like that. Yeah. Those are, you know, qual- qualitatively, I don't track numbers on it, but I have a sense of, of like when I hit a home run with a daily email because I'll get, you know, 20 or 30 replies to it. Sometimes I'll get mm. like 70 replies to an email and I'm like, wow, I guess that touched a nerve. So, you know, and I make note of that, but it's not, it's not in a spreadsheet somewhere. Yeah, gotcha. You said though before we hopped into this recording that you said you said that you do track qualitative and you do have a spreadsheet. Do, and is that mm-hmm. are those connected? Or are you have you created a spreadsheet mm-hmm. to measure that sort of thing? I'm just super curious. Yeah, I mean we could go. I mean I could talk for as long as you want. I don't know what time it is, but <laughs> the the um, yes. Yeah, so to answer your specific question, the the one the sort of dashboard for my business is it's just a spreadsheet with like down the the left hand side is like a list of things i offer and then across is you know january february march april may each column for each month and at the end of the month i've got a, a you know in the first of each month i've got a reminder in my calendar to like put the numbers in the spreadsheet from last month so i just run a run a download and i put in the numbers and i'm like and at on each one of those things each one of the offerings so there be like private coaching is the most expensive thing and you know all the way down to like an inexpensive ebook for 29 bucks so i've got all the products and services that are available and in a column next to that i have a drop down that has two options in it easy and hard and so to me that's to me that's the qualitative piece where it's like um this is an easy and hard in my head is kind of a mishmash of a couple of sub things but since it's just me i can pick it so like Hard is something that takes a ton of attention or emotional investment or has lots of appointments um, and combined with or maybe as multiplied by or I guess divided by uh, how much impact it's going to have on the mission. So the overall mission is to rid the world of hourly billing. Hmm. So if I look at something like my private one-on-one coaching program, which I could just do full-time and be a millionaire, uh, easily it's like well but that's really hard it takes a, it's a lot of appointments in my calendar mm-hmm. it's um it and it and it only touches i mean the most i can really handle at a time is like 10 people and if i had if i booked out every quarter 10 people 10 people 10 people i could have 30 people a year and then it's like um you know it's like that's only 30 people so all of that I, and i wouldn't have time or energy to do much else so mm-hmm. all of that combines for me to just label that hard. Another way to put it is like not that effective or leverage sure. is low. The leverage is low. So uh, then if you look at, uh, but so instead of doing that, I can make a million bucks selling a whole bunch of eBooks down at the other end of the spectrum that are easy. Every single one is easy. It's like you wrote it and that was hard, but that's over. And that stuff just sells itself. There's like a buy now button, boom. By now, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to show up and have an appointment. Um, occasionally, someone will be like, "Oh, there's a typo on page 52 or whatever," and I'll fix that. Or somebody needs a, an invo- a special invoice or something. But there's no. It's it's very easy and it has a huge impact. So the the sort of impact divisor in my gut instinct is is much smaller. So it has much bigger impact because I can reach more people with that stuff. And fund the mission, fund, you know, just like fund my lifestyle with a much, um, with something that's at an extremely low price point that is accept, uh, accessible to way more people than like a $25,000 coaching engagement. And you can get a $25 ebook and try that first. And that to me, so that's the qualitative thing is this gut instinct mishmash of whether it's a good, good thing for me to pursue or a less good thing for me to pursue or it's hard or it's easy, or it's got high impact, or it's got low impact. So I could use any of those labels for the for these things. But then when I at the end of the year, when I look back at my revenue mix, or really, I mean, my profit and revenue are almost the same, because my my costs are the same oh, every month. Yeah. So this is basically the same thing, as long as my revenue goes up, my profits are going up. So if I look at that, and I look back and I say, well, you know, if I made if I just got rid of all the hard stuff, how much would I have to increase the easy stuff 
so that I don't have to tell my wife that we're going to have a budget this year. (laughs) (laughs) How can I I say like, you know, how can I like maintain the lifestyle always growing? It doesn't have to be, I'm not like one of these, I have a very modest lifestyle. I don't need to have a, uh, even a BMW. I don't care about stuff like that. So it's like, as long as the, as long as everybody's happy in the house and um, I can reach more people, have a bigger impact. And, and that means spinning, you know, probably ramping down on the hard stuff, even though I love doing one-on-one coaching because it's extremely rewarding. You can have a really big impact, but it's only on one person at a time sure. and it's, it's life-changing for them often, but it's not aligned with the mission. So, yeah. uh, so like ramping those things down and ramping the other things up, that's what the qualitative column helps me helps me do when I'm at, you know, in January, when I kind of set my strategy for the year, then I, that's, that's when I really look at numbers. Amazing. Yeah. Cause you could, Super you could clear, almost, you. you could almost put in 80% of, I'm making up numbers obviously, but you could put in 80% of the effort with your lower hanging fruit product offerings, but have uh, a l- much larger impact. And so it, it makes sense to spend a lot of your effort there assuming the revenue mm-hmm. makes, you know, the numbers make sense as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rochelle and I talk about this a lot on the business of authority where it's, it's not about, I don't care about being a billionaire. Like I just couldn't care less about that. It, it would probably just mess me up. Um, I'm much more interested in, I, I do like, you know, I like nice things. Don't get me wrong, but it's not like, you know, I, this is not a Rolex. I don't care about that stuff. So the, the, I don't think about growing the business. Like I like to talk to people like, well, you want to grow the business, but grow what, like what, what piece of the business? And they almost always say revenue. Sometimes they say market share. Sometimes they mean headcount and all three of those things to me, maybe the market share one I could, I could get behind personally because that's kind of like spreading the word, but, but leading with revenue numbers is backwards to me. I see money as funding the mission. So start with the mission or the purpose or the goal or the big idea, whatever your objective is and not a financial objective. And then work your way backwards from that and say like, all right, how can I do that and fund my ability to come back tomorrow and do it again? Yeah. Cause if you run out of money, you're done, obviously yeah, you're going to go work sure. at a Starbucks, yeah. but you know, if you get a, you know, corporate job. Yeah. It's just, it's gas in the cart. You don't buy a car to have something that will consume gas. Like you don't, you don't need like, geez, I got to burn up all this gas. What should I do? Let's buy a car. That'll burn it up. (laughs) It doesn't, it's not about accumulating gasoline. It's fuel. It's fuel. So money is, you wouldn't hoard gas. So I don't understand why people hoard money. It it doesn't make sense. I love that perspective that you, that you just talked about too, because for people who want to get into who want to start podcasting, who want to start creating content to, uh, for their business or their brand, it should mm-hmm. be first and foremost about helping people. The mission should be educational, leading, education, helping, making an impact. It should be led with the mission and not the money. Those things should not be, should be, it's like the Zig Ziglar quote. If you help enough people get what they want, you'll find that you always had everything you wanted as well or something to You'll never effect. want but, for anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's true. Leading with the mission and let the money I mean, money easy for follow. me to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Easy for yeah. me. Everybody says, well, yeah, it's easy. You're famous. And I'm like, first of all, I'm not famous. And second of all, I wasn't born with an audience. You know, if, if you're not well-known, get well-known. Yeah. Like step one, get well-known. Step two, yeah. you can, <laughs> if you help, you know what I mean? People always act like, oh, that won't work for me because I'm not well-known. It's like, well, neither was I in 2016. And then I wrote a book, you know, so it, it's... yeah. You know, you should have seen, you should have seen me when I was in a band. Talk about not well known. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. That's funny. I uh, a, a, a quick tangent, and then I'll I'll I want to ask you one last question, then we can close up. Uh, I've watched your videos for for years. I always assumed uh, I'm being transparent here. I always assumed the 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 guitar in your corner was a prop. Now I know that you actually use mm-hmm. it. <laughs> You're a good art, good musician. No, I graduated from Berkeley, cum laude. Wow, wow, that's cool. That's incredible, super cool. Yeah. All right, let me uh, let me pivot um, just a little bit, then we can close this thing out. How have you seen your expertise, your authority grow as you create content? Has there been sort of evolution okay. of your thought and your expertise through the creation process? Yeah. So 
it's funny because the more there's sort of this curse of knowledge thing where the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. So it's this weird crisis of confidence mm. as you, you know, I've been writing a daily email since 2016. So it's like, uh, it's like I just passed my five year anniversary. Wow. So, you know, yeah. So what's that? 1500, 2000 emails. So, and, and I recently built a search function because there's so many of them and there's no way to search my site except for Google. So I recently created a search function for my community so that they could look for keywords that were just limited to my site. And so I was testing it and some really old stuff popped up and I would read it and I was like, wow, this is really good. Like, but it was, it, it was simpler. Like my, my, it was more vanilla back then. It was less nuanced back then. Mm. And, and so I noticed that, that as I go on, there's a lot more, it depends or, well, you know, what, what's your exact situation so I can really answer this where back then I was just like, here's how it works. Because back then I was only thinking, I was only aware of my circumstances and now I'm aware of hundreds of different, different types of circumstances. So, so it gets, um, it's almost like harder, the more, you know, in a sense. So I have to work harder to abstract it into something that is going to still be useful, but not, not like for one person on the list. So if you're on, on my list, something that is kind of effective is that people will ask me questions and I'll get permission from them to use their question as the jumping off point for that email so that the message is interpreted in the context of the question instead of me just putting the answer and then getting a hundred emails about like, but that won't work for me. And it's like, (laughs) I know I was answering this person's question. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so it, so that's, that is an interest. And I've heard this from other people who have really showed up every day for a long time on a particular subject area that it gets, it almost in a certain sense, it gets harder the more you know because you're also aware of like way more variables. Yeah, sure. Um, another thing though is that I I find uh, this is especially helpful when I'm working with people in group coaching is that you see patterns from people that a software developer and designer and an architect where they'll be this they're 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 all experiencing a similar symptom in their business. And it causes me to go deeper beyond pricing, which is what I mostly think about is pricing. And I find the, I, and I, and these business concepts, and you start to find that the common denominator are self-help kind of con- content, mm. like, like confidence, imposter syndrome, um, productivity, perseverance, yeah. um, you know, risk taking, like, like traditional self-help book type stuff. Yeah. And it's like, well, like now I gotta maybe read I'm this. going there. <laughs> yeah, right. Now I got to read this or now I have to, how do I solve this problem? Cause I'm not really good with the psychiatrist stuff. So <laughs> when it's so, but, but I, but I know people are, and I ask them to like, like, what would you do if you had like three people like in a situation like this? And they'll point me to a book and then I read the book and, and who knows, maybe someday I'll have a, like, you know, live your best life book. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> it feels very out of character, but yeah. I can see as as you get into the specifics of these problems, there are these underlying. It's it's often confidence. There's this sure. confidence thing that's underneath setting. I mean, imagine, imagine if you're used to sending out a proposal for five thousand dollars, and I'm like, you should. This proposal that you've got is clearly a fifty thousand dollar proposal, and they can't even. They'll just laugh like, "There's no way yeah. I can't." Like the all these, all of these, you know, personal relationship with money and little kid like stuff from your parents. And it's, yeah, yeah, it gets pretty hectic. Yeah. It gets pretty hectic really fast. If you're increasing your fees. Yeah. So you almost have to unclog the, the deeper root. So like say for instance, well, they don't want to go value-based pricing because they're worried about losing their job and job security is important to them because their dad got fired when they were a kid. And so now you're having to dislodge the clog of their parent issues That's before a real you can example. get to the value. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's not uncommon. Not uncommon. Whoa. And a lot, there's a lot of people out there that are like charge more and they're like, yeah, I charged more. But there are also a lot of people who are like, that's not fair. I'm gouging the, the customer. And it's like, well, the customer doesn't have to buy it. They could just say no. It's like, oh, I couldn't not say yes to a client. That's another one. Not being the inability to, to maintain, set and maintain boundaries between the client and you. And like, there's, yeah, it gets, it gets, I mean, uh, it gets pretty, I don't know, squishy 
very quickly. You know, it's it goes from numbers and pricing and stuff like that very quick to like, oh, I could never send that. I could never send that. I could never say that. Yeah. It's like, well, that is and, oh all right. Gosh, that, let's that's dive into that. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so so maybe I found myself in the the sort of beginner's mind of a new topic area because beginner's mind is what I had in 20 when I started the weekly blog I had beginner's mind where I was like oh this isn't that hard you just need to know a few things and those things worked for me but they don't work for everyone so then I end up with the curse of knowledge but now I have beginner's mind with like how to say no to customers or stuff like that so we'll see yeah so in, in 2024 we should expect to see uh Living your best life and value-based pricing. <laughs> yeah, something yeah. super woo-woo. Yeah, yeah, right. That's great. Yeah, I, I see it now. Like that stuff sounded like, you know, BS to me a lot of times. That stuff, but but so does, you know. But I don't know. So does a lot of other stuff. And like when I when I look into this the more and more, I'm like, wow, there is literally a confidence problem here. Wow. Yeah. How do I fix that? Or how do yeah. I help with it? I can't fix it. Yeah. Man, Jonathan. The- I can't thank you enough for everything that you shared. We'll, we'll wrap it up with that because, man, we could we really could go on forever. This has been such a, a, a great time. You're a remarkable businessman. I love the content that you're putting out. And thank you so much for taking time to share your story, your journey, um, some of the things that you care about with us and how the show that you've been doing is going for you. Just to give something um, to help you out as, as if you need our help. You're doing such a great job. <laughs> But um, if you if you if there's people listening right now who want to learn more about you, follow your content, or even jump on your email list, how would you direct them to do that? Yeah, if uh, we talked about value pricing a little bit here, but we didn't go in depth too much. So if, if you know the next time somebody asks you what your hourly rate is, stop what you're doing. Don't tell them. <laughs> stop what you're doing <laughs> and go sign up for uh, my value pricing bootcamp. Uh, just go to valuepricingbootcamp.com and It'll redirect you to a page on my site where you can get a free six-day course on. It goes into in-depth on six topic areas underneath value pricing. Awesome. That's wonderful. Jonathan, thanks again, man. We're so glad that we could have you on the cool. show. Cool. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Oh, my gosh. That was awesome. <laughs> Jonathan Stark. I really wish we could have gone for about two, three more hours and turned it into a Joe Rogan podcast length. We probably could have. That was, I, there's so many things I wanted to ask him, just not even just about the show that he's been doing, but yeah. about his perspective on, on value-based pricing. And then this whole, this whole dynamic that we went, we were like, we could have gone down a serious rabbit trail with the yeah. whole confidence thing, because there's so many, um, I know I felt that personally. I'm sure that yeah. you felt that personally. And mm-hmm. I know that there's so many people who, uh, business leaders in the B2B space who want to start creating their own thought leadership content, but that's what's keeping them from doing it. They, they think, you know, do I have what it takes? Do people, would people be interested in what I have to say? Uh, that imposter syndrome is, um, it's just so real. But what's something that stuck out to you during that episode? You know, I loved his conversation ab- uh, about, or a part of our conversation, we talked about, uh, it's about helping people more than it is about the metrics. Mm. And he talked about the vanity metrics and he really only, he boiled it down to profit and new leads in his email and how he talked about that it's supposed to be about the people and who you're helping and adding value and making an impact. And, you know, for those people who have imposter syndrome, who feel like, oh, I can't do this. No one will listen. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not, an, you know, I'm not an authority. It's like, well, can you help people? Will people find your perspective and your unique perspective valuable? Then it's worth doing. Right. And if you don't have the best equipment, you don't have the best sounding voice, like Jonathan has an incredible voice when it comes to podcasting, that doesn't matter. You're there to help people. And if you're there to help people, then you just you just get started. Uh, and put aside all the other things that are maybe you're creating in your mind for why you shouldn't do this and just do it. And you'll find, like he said, people just start watching. They start listening. They start saying, wow, I love that last. You can see even his, his uh, surprise when his, one of his clients said, oh yeah, I love the last episode. He's like, you're listening? That's incredible. It'll yeah. happen. If you're adding value, people will start listening. 
I think it's cool too, even what you just said about not just adding value to an audience that you don't yet know, but adding more value to the mm-hmm. to the customers, the clients that you do know that you are serving. And so it's, oh gosh, I just, it makes me love podcasting so much more I just know. having that conversation. Yeah. I want to finish up with just, um, there was another, there's so many things. I was taking a ton of notes. Uh, I said it before, um, but one of the things that I loved was about, you know, doing business with people you like he said help like his business philosophy is yeah help people you like get what they want want and i think that's what's so that's what's so cool about doing a show is that you can build an audience around you know with people that you would ideally want to do business with and then they get to understand more about who you are and uh, understand your personality. Would you be someone that they'd be interested in talking with over uh, an hour and a half long lunch or something like that? So, just think, man, he he really gets it. He's using he's using his show, his content, to um, to do something right to build his business, uh, not just a business that's profitable, but a business that's enjoyable. I think yeah. it's he's really hit the jackpot. Yeah, and you know he was uh, he was very modest when it comes to promoting himself. So I'll I'll right. help a little bit too. If you want just a master's course uh, in obviously in value-based pricing, but a lot of other things in regards to business and uh, being an authority in your space, uh, follow him on Twitter. He has some great content on Twitter. He oftentimes will use questions that he receives on Twitter as uh, topics that he'll discuss on his podcast or on his uh, YouTube show uh, or in blog posts. So hit him up on Twitter. But uh, his content on podcasts and YouTube are incredible. Some of them are a minute long, some are 50 minutes long, but all of it's gold either way. So it's gonna help anybody who's listening immensely. Good call. Thanks for that uh, that last note to make sure that he yeah. gets he gets what he deserves, man. Yeah. He gets some serious recognition. Absolutely. Um, and Jake, man, fun episode. Thanks for yeah. joining me on the show today. My pleasure.